Okay, this is John Andercheck. It is the 6th of November, 2020, a few days after our general election. Uh, joining me is Don McIntosh, who has, uh, I've interviewed him a, more than a few times now since I started this effort. And uh, we're going to go over um, a post-election. We're going to do a post-election analysis. Uh, Don is a a senior reporter with Northwest Labor Press, uh, I, which celebrated its 100th anniversary, a union newspaper, a labor newspaper, uh, still on its feet after 100 years uh, with the ebb and flow. And uh, so with that... You're making me sound so young, but actually it's 120 years. It's 120 it's years. There year. you go. Yeah. And uh, check us out, by the way, uh, your listeners uh, on uh, nwlaborpress.org your email in and get, uh, get a, a twice a month in your inbox. Um, yeah, so uh, thanks for having me on. Okay, and just hold on here. Now I'm having technical difficulties. Uh, my recording has stopped here. Let me, uh, together on my side, he uh, uh, noted that uh, Northwest Labor Press is 120 years old, and uh, which says a lot. Uh, and Don, I'm just going to try to get it over to you before more things go wrong. And uh, please give us, uh, those who will listen to this, uh, your take on uh, what we're seeing so far uh, with the election nationally, statewide, and then, of course, your turf there in uh, Oregon and southwest Washington state. Sure, you want the whole shebang? Yeah, that's it. Yeah. Right, I'll, I'll do my best. Okay. Well, you know, as your listeners probably know, at this point, it looks like uh, Joe Biden is uh, going to be the next president. Um, the big question, and I'm sure people are going to be, uh, you know, going over this for a long time, is, you know, why, why was it so close in a situation like this? Uh, and I'm not a particular oracle. I have my theories. Maybe we can talk about them later. Uh, but, you know, we know that it's, it's not a good result, uh, you know, for, for, for Democrats and, 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 frankly, for labor. I mean, labor, uh, you know, put substantial resources into um, trying to get Joe Biden elected. And it looks like maybe, maybe they'll have succeeded. But if for, it, for it to be this close in this kind of an environment with uh, the catastrophe of the epidemic and uh, the economy and, you know, just frankly, four years of, of turmoil and distraction and, and on and on, I, I, I think we should all be very worried. It should be questioning what's going on here. Um, you know, there's some sign uh, that large numbers of union uh, members are voting for, for Trump. Uh, in Pennsylvania, I saw one uh, exit poll showing you know, a majority of union members, and that, that's somewhat new, uh, actually. There's been consistently, you know, 30 to 40 percent of union members that have, for whatever reason, preferred to vote Republican uh, cultural or just economic philosophy and so forth. You know, the unions, uh, it's probably worth pointing out, the unions are, are actually not Democratic Party organizations. They're nonpartisan organizations that have an agenda uh, to protect and defend working people. And they would love it if both parties, or however many parties there are, would compete like heck to get their vote by, by trying to adopt those policies. Unfortunately, uh, you know, they have uh, one party that's, you know, sometimes will do, do uh, them a favor or do the right thing. That's the Democratic Party. Uh, and sometimes can be unreliable depending on when and where. Um, and another party that's really unfortunately trending uh, more and more uh, overtly hostile to unions and union policies, and that's the Republican Party. And I, I see that as a very uh, sad trend. I wish it were otherwise. But it puts unions in the position of being, you know, all Democrat all the time, which I, I, I want to say is, is an exaggeration. Certainly at the local level, you'll see relationships with public sector and building trade unions that they develop with Republican legislators, and, and they do uh, endorse them and help them get elected as well. But at the national level where the big policies are made, uh, it's, it's, you know, you see 
you'll see all kinds of votes where if you if the union specific legislation like right to work or uh, Davis Bacon sometimes uh, Davis Bacon not not all together but but some sort of union rights legislation you'll see basically party line votes where you'll have almost all Democrats voting for it like the Pro Act last uh, earlier this year in, in the House this would be make it easier to unionize and get a first contract uh, all but five the Democrats voted for it not a single Republican voted for it so that's a really stark divide between the parties and it's not a divide that the labor, labor movement created I just want to make that clear uh, this is what we're you know confronted with as, as labor union members and we have to deal with it but unfortunately then that means we're sort of tied to uh, tie, a little bit of our fortunes are tied to this democratic party that has been in a you know depending on how you read it you know a 40 or 50 year slop uh, but again we've talked more about that you know uh, the, the big thing is with Biden uh, being uh, likely elected at this point, you know, he really made a lot of promises to labor. Um, and in particular, you know, he said he would like to pass sweeping legislation to make it easier to unionize. Uh, all, all kind of, he, there's really quite a, an impressive uh, set of uh, ideas. The problem is, uh, of course, if it looks like the Senate is going to remain in Republican hands, there's basically just zero chance that, that Mitch McConnell or the, or the Republican majority is going to let any of those things pass. So we're looking at two years probably of gridlock. Uh, you know, I will say with, with you know, if, if Biden is in the White House in January, you know, there's a lot he can do as an executive. So there are executive orders, uh, particularly ones they will overturn, like there was a whole series of executive orders by Trump that really stripped federal workers of their union rights. I'm sure that on day one, Biden will reverse those. But there's other things, too. Uh, in particular, you know, it's putting people in charge of the Department of Labor and OSHA uh, and uh, the National Labor Relations Board who actually, you know, uh, you care about those laws and want to see them enforced, uh, you know, and aren't coming from the corporate world uh, where, where, where what we've seen with Trump appointees. So I think, you know, uh, it's, it's a mixed, mixed victory, if you can call it that. I mean, I think that it, it, you know, Trump is an interesting character because he has actually, um, I think, made a real effort to court union voters um, and even to be nice occasionally to union leaders. But, you know, on the policy level, he, you know, he really hasn't been a friend to labor. Um, the only thing I, we, I did a, a story and analysis of his four years. And the only thing I think you can fairly say that improved in terms of actual workers' rights um, is, is he renegotiated NAFTA. And it is an improvement, you know. So uh, the. There, there are some stronger labor standards that Mexico is going to have to adhere to, uh, and there is a requirement that uh, you know in the automobile industry, things that are produced in Mexico, they have to be the workers have to be making at least I think it's fifteen or sixteen dollars an hour. So those are actually improvements. Oh, and there's one other thing too. It's very technical, but it was a big deal with NAFTA. You could, as a corporation, you could sue a foreign government uh, if they if they did something to reduce your profits, and a lot of people thought that was illegitimate, um, and that's been stripped. It's called the Investor State Dispute Resolution process. It's been stripped from the new agreement. So those are actually improvements, and we ought to give him credit, and unfortunately, it pretty much ends there. I mean, you know, he had he had promised a trillion dollars investment in infrastructure. That never happened. He pretty much, he didn't forget about it, but he tried to pull a little bait and switch uh, where he said, well, okay, now it's a trillion dollars because I'm offering 200 billion in federal money and the states can match it five to, or four to one. Well, it doesn't really work like that because if they had that kind of money, they'd just do the infrastructure and investment already and wouldn't need the federal support. So it was really a, I think a cruel hoax at that point for anybody that was taken in, if anybody was, uh, with his promise of a trillion dollars, a 
of an infrastructure investment, which we really need, uh, needless to say, crumbling bridges, roads, all that kind of stuff, water treatment plants. So, uh, you know, and there's other, we could go into Trump's record, but I, I think maybe your listeners will be a little bit familiar with um, You know, one of the things that was interesting to me, sifting through the results from election night, was uh, looking at how different um, voters behave uh, towards candidates versus issues. So when you actually put a ballot measure in front of folks, like this is a really great example. In Florida, they approved a ballot measure to raise the minimum wage uh, to, to $15 an hour by 2026. And they go up a dollar an hour a year. That's pretty great for those Florida low-wage workers. They approved that by 61%. And this is the same state that, you know, where the majority uh, voted for Republican lawmakers, uh, voted for Republican candidate for president, and so forth. All of them are totally against the minimum wage increase. So you really have a, uh, you know, kind of a, there, there's something going on there where uh, you vote for uh, someone who's against the minimum wage for office, but you vote to increase the minimum wage if you actually have that policy choice. And I think you see that a lot around the country. And in fact, this is this is something we've seen before, like uh, a few years ago, you know, Arkansas or Missouri, uh, you know, basically anywhere in the country, if you put a minimum wage uh, increase on the ballot, people are likely to vote for it, um, even, even in the so-called red states. So... Um, you know, I, I have my theories about why this might be. Uh, again, if you want to know, we could go into that. But but just wanted to note that it's an interesting development. In Colorado, uh, voters passed by a pretty comfortable margin, uh, 57%, uh, a paid leave plan where if you have a baby, heaven forbid, if you have a baby, you get to stay home for 12 weeks and get to know your new child. Or if you have, uh, uh, you know, if your your mother is gravely ill, you get to stay home. So so it's, it's a paid leave plan that's funded by a payroll tax that both the employers and employees share. But it gives workers that basic right of, you know, when you have a serious emergency, you can actually take time off and take care of that um, in Colorado. And this is by the way, a policy in much of the uh, developed world, the United States is an outlier uh, in not having that kind of thing generally. Um, you know, there were, uh, in Nebraska, you don't think of that maybe as a progressive uh, bastion, but the voters of Nebraska, by 83%, approved an initiative that limits uh, interest on payday loans to, to 36% annual interest. But, you know, so I think that, um, you know, there are certainly instances around the country where you know, if you actually just put a policy in front of voters, a labor, sort of a pro-worker policy, they will back it, uh, even whether or not they trust the Democrats or, or, or maybe they might back a Republican uh, candidate for, for, for a variety of reasons. Um, the big exception I was sad, very sad to see uh, is in California, where um, I guess my short version is, uh, I guess, money talks, you know, money talks in the Golden State. So basically the most expensive ballot measure uh, campaign in U.S. history uh, just uh, ended with what I would regard as a big defeat for labor. This is it's called Proposition 22, and it was written by... Uh, Uber and Lyft and Instacart, DoorDash, Postmates, all these gig economy uh, entities. And it was in response to a law that the California legislature, California State Assembly, passed last year. Uh, the law basically said, hey, these gig workers that are working for your companies, they're workers, they're employees, they're not independent contractors. That, that's, it was a test that the law uh, imposed that basically said if you were driving for Uber, um, guess what, they set all the conditions, they set the wage, they, you know, all the rules, you know, whether, whether you continue to drive for them, you're not really an independent contractor like, like you would be if you just had your own business or something like that. So they, those folks would have to be treated like employees, which means they've got Social Security and maybe workers' comp and unemployment insurance if need be, and uh, other sort of basic rights, like, oh my gosh, you could even maybe unionize, you know, if you're an employee. 
which you can't do as an independent contractor. So this was a big, big win for, for gig workers, uh, except that that industry really threw its weight around um, and persuaded a majority of California voters uh, to agree with them. I think there were a variety of things they did. Um, they threatened to pull out. You know, you won't have Uber if this if this doesn't pass. Um, and they made it seem like a fairness issue. They typed, they really hammered home the idea that, that if this uh, uh, didn't pass, that the gig workers would be hurt by it. They would lose, lose their livelihoods. But it was kind of blackmail, in my opinion. Um, and I'm really just, I'm just really sad to see that you know, that 58%, 58% of Californians. Uh, you know, went, went along with this. Uh, labor uh, and allies put, I think, $100 million into um, uh, opposing the measure, uh, but the $205 million and maybe just something about the argument uh, led, it to, led it to pass. There were a couple other big defeats in California. I don't know. Uh, California is an interesting state always because it's, it's huge and super progressive, but it's also, you know, when, if you are determined, uh, sometimes you can spend money and get, uh, you know, they basically beat, beat these measures. So, uh, one of them would have um, loosened restrictions on local governments enacting rent control. Uh, that went down badly. Just just forty eight or forty percent of people voted for it, sixty percent against. Um, and then there was one, um, maybe a long long history, but uh, you know, pre- uh, in nineteen seventy eight, uh, California became the first state to have this anti tax backlash, which is you know started to tighten the belt of governments and. Uh, you know, ever since then, that was Proposition 13. It basically limited property taxes. Uh, it, it said that, you know, whatever you paid for your property, the tax should be based on that. So it said there was no inflation and you're frozen in time. Very good for property owners, I suppose. Very bad for citizens who want services uh, because it, you know, restricted the amount of money that uh, California could collect from property taxes. So there was a, 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 a measure of Proposition 15, which basically would have partially reverse that by saying, well, you know, commercial property, you know, if you're Walmart, you own a property there, we're not going to let you pay property tax on the basis of what you paid for it in, you know, in 2003. We're going to let, you know, say that you need to pay the, the actual, uh, what it's actually worth now, what most property tax systems are. Uh, well, unfortunately, that measure uh, went down also. Uh, yeah. Criminalizes uh, uh, drug possession. Not it doesn't decriminalize drugs or say you know you can't you know you can still illegal, you're going to be a uh, crime to, to sell and distribute them if you're a drug dealer and all that. But if you're basically an addict or a, you know a level you know a, a, a user, that would downgrade that to something along the lines of a traffic ticket. Which you know if you're going to pay your two hundred fifty dollar fine, you have an alternative, which is just you know turn yourself into drug treatment. And they want to make drug treatment available on demand. I mean, this is, I don't know what the situation is like uh, where you are, uh, but, you know, in, in my city of Portland, um, it is, uh, we've really seen a dramatic uh, change in, in, in recent years. So many homeless people, so many addicts. We were in a crisis in this society with addiction. And the idea that, like, you know, you have fallen into a bad way, you, you did something you shouldn't have, and now you're stuck, you know, you can't get out. You know, when you, you show up to a uh, drug trip, you, you, you have an epiphany, a bad night or something you say okay i'm ready to quit help me out and they say well sorry sir get in line or we don't have anything available come back in a month that's not really going to work you know we have an interest in society uh as a society uh making sure that you know our neighbors aren't suffering that our neighbors aren't robbing us you know right. we're all in this together and i think that when when we allow this kind of um 
you know, this kind of despair and this kind of pain and suffering of, of, the, of the addiction that we're seeing, you know, that's that's just not something that I, I, I can support. So Oregon voters actually uh, supported that by, by 59%. It was not close. Uh, so it decriminalizes drug possession, and it basically aims to make drug treatment available on demand. Um, it, what it does is it, um, it's a little bit technical, but, you know, we, we, we passed our uh, marijuana uh, legalization for recreational use a few years ago, and that is uh, turns out is generating uh, a, an enormous amount of tax revenue, as you just mentioned, uh, and uh, more than was predicted. Actually, I guess we like this stuff here in Oregon. So uh, basically, uh, it takes those proceeds uh, over what was predicted, and it puts them towards drug treatment. So, so that's so I think that is a big. Um, it's a big deal. It's a complete. You know, it's saying the drug war as a war is over. That locking people up is not a, a good solution. It's expensive. It's more expensive to lock people up than it is to give them treatment. Uh, but so this this is really charting a new direction, and I hope other states will, will look at this and see if this works and, and, and consider adopting it. Um, there's a, uh, there's another it was a rather interesting one. Uh, labor. There was a couple unions endorsed this. It wasn't really a labor issue, but uh, it's sort of a similar approach to psychoactive mushrooms. It turns out that the psilocybin, the magic mushrooms, uh, there's some reason to think that they may actually have a therapeutic use for people with post-traumatic stress disorder and others and some psychological disorders. Something about it. You know, particularly in a controlled setting, you take this this thing and you have I don't know an experience that that leaves you maybe feeling more at peace afterwards. So not to be confused with recreational use. This is not oh buy your mushrooms and have some kind of a giant trip. This is in controlled settings. Uh, it's going to be rolled out in two years. But basically, for for those who you know have you know reason to think they might benefit from this, they're going to be allowed to do that. Where currently it's been illegal, of course. Right, Don. Yeah, I like that. Yeah, with that. Because I've read, uh, as far as that, the psychedelics, um, you know, LSD even, there's been studies showing its um, benefits possibly to end a life, uh, uh, you know, end a life, you know, terminally ill people. Uh, again, you know, uh, 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 that's good because, uh, in my opinion, because I could, I could definitely see, you know, the science is out there and we don't allow it to uh, progress. Uh, we're shutting that uh, avenue off and you know that's uh, that's important we live in a society now where people live longer but uh, uh the last years of their life can be very problematic uh emotionally physically uh so that'll be interesting to watch um don and then um uh, uh actually you know it's interesting that when you talk about drugs and um labor issue um uh laborers union in particular but uh a lot of unions were really leading away and trying to bring the attention uh, of the problem of painkillers because in the trades, um, you know, it, it's tough business. You see a guy or a brother or sister that's been doing it 20, 30 years, um, they're, they could be in pretty rough shape, but they get up and go out and do it again. Uh, but that's interesting. Also, Don, um, I'm speaking with Don McIntosh out of Portland with Northwest Labor Press. 120 years of bringing the word of, of the workers to everybody now on the internet is available as well as a print edition. Uh, wasn't there initiatives out of Portland as far as uh, infrastructure in a sense? Uh, there, there were, there were some big ones. Yeah, let me uh, wrap up with a list on that because I think this is, this. I find this in some ways more interesting than the candidate races, which are harder to pin down. But before we leave the drug treatment measure, you, you mentioned the union aspect, and I think it's worth pointing out there was a solid union support for that measure, which, as you say, passed. Um, you know, you had the state AFL-CIO, you had CWA, the communications workers, you had your union, IBEW, 
UPW, uh, Local 48 in this case, was, was backing it. The Nurses Association, the service employees, the, the, uh, the food and commercial workers, the grocery workers. So, you know, this was, um, I think unions realizing this was good policy, it was going to do the right thing. Actually, there is one little aspect which it may help working people uh, directly as working people as well, which is, um, me in particular, this is American Federation of State County Municipal Employees, They've been waging a campaign now for years, basically to try and lift standards of working people that, that are in what's called behavioral health. So basically, it's drug treatment and mm-hmm. mental, mental um, health issues. It turns out the workers in that industry that, that you know are trying to help you, uh, you know, kick your addiction and so forth, they themselves are paid very, very poorly, and it's a d- difficult industry to get into. They might expect you to have some kind of a degree in social work or a degree in psychology, but then you're you're, you're making so little money. Uh, you know, it's hard, hard to hard against it. it doesn't become a sustainable career and so I think one of the hopes is that uh, if uh, you know there's more uh, funding going into drug treatment uh, that could become more of a uh, sustainable occupation for folks where they can gain experience um, you know, it's very disruptive to an addict in treatment to have your counselor uh, you know leave because they can't afford to keep working there you know those relationships are really important and so turnover is a problem um, and, and therefore you know it being an unsustainable um, you know, kind of uh, occupation is a problem. So I think that's that's one hopeful sign. Um, I, before we get to the local one you mentioned, I cannot uh, not mention uh, what could actually prove to be the most important ballot measure uh, we'll see in Oregon history. We'll see. Uh, it's, it's measure 107. It, limited, it allows uh, limits to campaign contributions. Um, you know, some people have this idea of Oregon as being this progressive uh, state and so forth, uh, and they'd be surprised uh, to know that we are awash in money, in political money. Uh, in fact, one of the worst states in the country for it. Uh, we're one of, up till now, we've been uh, one of only five states that have no limits whatsoever on what you can contribute. If you're Phil Knight, billionaire Nike founder, and you get you, you know angry about something, you can put in hundreds of thousands, millions of dollars into things. There's no restriction. Money has been considered speech by our state uh, Supreme Court and how they've interpreted the Constitution, which has been really problematic. Um, and, you know, you know, frankly, unions are, 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 are you know, finding themselves need, needing to, you know, raise and spend large amounts of money, but they're always outspent, you know, or almost always outspent by businesses. So I think this is a game where we don't want to play. We'd rather have one person, one vote, not one dollar, one vote. So, so this, this, they finally just got around to uh, the legislature referred it to voters, and they, and, and they passed it overwhelmingly. Uh, where, uh, guess what, we've now said, guess what, we, the Constitution does not say you cannot limit this. So, so this is directed to the Supreme Court, you know, you were wrong. We like free speech, but that is not free speech. So, so what we expect, hopefully, uh, in the coming uh, year is that the legislature will then have the authority to act and pass some reasonable limits on campaign finance. Um, and that can really be a game changer because, you know, you know unions are the power of people, um, you know, and if, if, you, if you, you know, get that playing field more level than where the power of people can start to make some victories against the power of money, I think it could change the state. So on the, on the local level, I'll tell you the one um, that I'm most excited about, actually, <laughs> and, and it's, uh, it's dear to my heart as, as a parent, uh, and it's it's called Preschool uh, for All, and it's just Multnomah County. Multnomah County is uh, Oregon's large, most populous county. It's the county that includes Portland and some of its east side suburbs like Gresham and Troutdale. But, but uh, so, so well, I kind of just passed this uh, ballot measure uh, that w- 
we'll make preschool free for all three and four year olds in the county, paid for by a tax on the very wealthiest. It's an mm-hmm. income tax, a uh, couple of percent on people that are making you know two hundred, four hundred thousand dollars a year. I think I think that'll be okay. You know, they, they they've gotten a real good deal in recent years. In fact, their taxes used to be a lot higher, uh, so I think they can afford that. And it's going to be such an amazing uh, game changer for, for, for parents. Can you imagine? This, this is going to lift a $10,000, $12,000 a year burden off your shoulders if you've been paying for preschool for your, for your three- and four-year-old. If you've been, you know, there's, there's families where, you know, the mom is at home. She would rather be at work or any more income for the family or being at, go to school and get ahead. But she can't because she's got kids and she's got to watch them because she can't afford the, the preschool. This is going to make it possible for her or for him, the parents, to also get out and get a job or get education. Um, and very importantly, it, it, it contains very specific rules about uh, what uh, the preschool teachers would be paid. Um, up till now, again, it's been one of those, um, you know, low-wage occupations, women's work. And, uh, you know, you, you might have uh, even wanted to go into a career in child development and have a degree, but you're still only making just about minimum wage. Well, that's all going to change, uh, at least in this county, for the preschool teachers. They're going to be uh, now... Um, being uh, on par with kindergarten teachers, so their wages got more than more than double uh, from about uh, I think 13 an hour to maybe 26 and more. Um, and I, I just think that's tremendously exciting. I mean, for all those folks to actually make a living doing this wonderful thing, educating and, and, and caring for for our kids. So it's a big deal. I hope it'll be um, repeated elsewhere. The New York Times had a piece about it today, so I think other people are noticing. It. You know, I'd love to see it imitated. Um, again, it's one of those things that. In other, other parts of the world, this is common sense. You know, Western Europe, you know, you have free preschool. It's just like, you know, it's the same as uh, pre, preschool. We don't, we don't say when your kid is going to kindergarten or first grade, we'll say, well, how much money do you have? Or right. you know, here's your tuition and so forth. We just basically see this as a public good. You know, like this is, we, we, you know, we as a society have decided, you know, it's just good to educate our kids and have them know how to get along and work together and, you know, be, be safe and, and happy and all that. So I, I'm very excited about that. Um, it was actually a lot of union support. Um, and, uh, you know, it was, it, it was, it was a really beautiful campaign. Uh, the one you mentioned earlier, I was very sad to see, um, it's really just going to affect the Portland area, so I don't know if you're folks in, in Idaho, if this matters to them. But, you know, it was it was a very large, actually might work, <laughs> it was a very large billion-dollar uh, transportation infrastructure investment uh, that was going to be funded by a payroll tax. But, but basically, um, you know, a light rail line and free bus passes and road improvements and for, all, for the entire metro region. Um, and it was supported by all of the... Um, the, the, the local regional governor, government folks, and it was supported by all the, all the unions. They put hundreds of thousands of dollars, the unions and union contractors, into it because it was a big deal. Um, and it unfortunately went down uh, pretty hard, and that's because at a late point in the game, uh, some of the bigger businesses decided, no, we don't want to pay that payroll tax. It was a payroll tax of um, 0.75%, so less than a percent, um, on uh, businesses of 25 employees or, or, or over, so not small businesses, but the larger ones. But, you know, uh, <laughs> and the thing is, in Washington, they already pay uh, t- uh, gross receipts tax on, the, on that level. Uh, you know, there are other payroll taxes. I mean, it may not be the best way to have gone about it, but it's not like it was going to be a, an economy killer. That, that, a tax at that level, you know, it's real money, but it's not. It's not going to be the, the difference between jobs or no jobs or businesses. No businesses. They just didn't want to pay it, and so they spent heavily 
um, and persuaded uh, the folks in this region that it was a wage tax, um, that it was going to kill jobs, and it was just terrible. And so uh, they, they even, I think at one, at one point they even called the, um, the, the, the light rail train a virus train that would be coming into your community, bringing the virus. I mean, they, they did some real low things, in other words, I think, at, at one point. But, uh, yeah, so um, just very sorry that that failed. That was going to be a, uh, there was an estimate of like over 30,000 construction jobs over a 10-year period. It was a big deal. You might have had some travelers from union travelers from Idaho uh, get uh, good good union wage work on it, but uh, for now that is um, not on not going to happen. So we'll, we'll see what comes out of it next. Well, that seems to me, uh, to say the least, uh, well, the virus train strikes me as racist slash class that, you know, the undesirables are going to come into uh, your neighborhood, uh, Don, uh, uh, and it seems so short-sighted or uh, 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 or worse because if you were running a business, uh, how could you argue against a more efficient transportation system for your workers? It's proven that gridlock uh, on and on uh, uh, is a degrades uh, uh, your productivity. Yeah, we have some of the, well, until the pandemic anyway, we had some of the worst traffic in the country. You know, right now it's interesting because, you know, we're finding that everyone can work from home. I should say, I, I don't mean that really literally, but a lot of people can work from home. It, it turns out you know, they didn't realize they could before or they just didn't want to. And, you know, so it's going to be interesting to see how that transforms um, you know, the economy and transportation and all kinds of things. Per, uh, personally, I predict it will not return to the way it was before. It's going to be, I think if you're in the commercial real estate business and office office uh, buildings, that's going to be a tough sector right now because I think, you know, uh, a lot of companies have realized, you know what, we don't have to pay for commercial real estate. We can have these folks work productively. Huh. You know, uh, we'll, we'll see. But then, you know, the other thing is, you know, just in transportation. I mean, if you work from home, you're not, you're not getting in your car twice a day, um, you know, to go back and forth to work. So, you know, uh, strangely enough, there could be some positive aspects of, um, of the pandemic in terms of you know, global warming and pollution and traffic for that matter. Uh, but, yeah, we'll see. We'll see. Uh, yeah, on the flip side of that would be my concerns that uh, at least we'd have to think about it. One of my concerns is they'll look at education and say, uh, well, we don't need uh, one teacher for 20 some kids. We'll see on that. Uh, of course, um, for every action as a reaction, uh, it'll be uh, a change in employment. You know, are the mini marts going to suffer uh, on and on? I mean, not to make light of that, but, it, you know, uh, for every complex question, there's, it's always a complex answer. Don Don McIntosh with Northwest Labor Press, a union paper, bringing the news of unions and labor and workers for 120 years. Don's out of Portland. The paper's out of Portland. But the news is pertinent, uh, in my opinion, both regionally and nationally. And so I'd like to get back this loop around here and then I'll let you go. But uh, when we were, before we were recording, and I apologize for all the technical problems here, um, uh, we were talking about, um, uh, for for myself, and I think you said the same thing, it's uh, telling and poignant and sad in a way that uh, we have to have a Democratic president, a pre- uh, uh, a candidate, excuse me, from the party that associated with workers, starting with Roosevelt, that had to fight for uh, these bastions at one time of uh, a union workers, uh, Ohio, which Biden lost, uh, Michigan, Wisconsin. I mean, he won those, but he had a fight for him. Pennsylvania, I think, is still up in the air. And uh, uh, to me, it's very telling. And uh, uh, 
uh, I think we're going to have to, as a labor movement, um, uh, I don't think we can give, we'll see what Biden does, but I don't think uh, we're going to be able to give him a honeymoon because uh, uh, we'll see. I mean, uh, so what's your take on that, Don, as we're kind of closing up on this? Well, you know, it's just a huge question. Um, and, you know, part of it, too, is, you know, you know what, what has happened between the Labor Movement and the Democratic Party uh, that is allowing these kinds of results to happen? And I guess I, I would speculate a couple of things. One is that, you know, it's just it's just a fact that, um, you know, the labor movement uh, isn't as strong as it once was. And I think that, you know, at one time, I think being a union member was a core part of your identity. Now, certainly for many people, it still is, I'm glad to say, but I think it's just less so than it used to be. And so to the extent that, you know, your union recommended that you vote for somebody, um, you know, it used to be more common that you would say, look, my union, I'm a union member, my union recommended this, they've looked at it, you know, I know they've got my back, I'm going to vote the union recommendations. I don't think that's as common today. And I think that, um, so that's one part of it. The other part of it is frankly that, you know, people have grown to distrust with some reason uh, the Democratic Party. Um, now, sometimes it's a little unfair. They might say, well, all Democrats are sellouts, all Democrats are corporate, you know, progressives and this and that, but which isn't true. There are still many, uh, you know, pro-labor uh, Democrats that, you know, really do fight for the interests of working people. But unfortunately, you know, really, uh, for, really from the 70s on, especially, uh, certainly in the Clinton area era, you know, you had uh, uh, at, at the highest levels, you had the Democratic Party really embrace uh, Wall Street and the hedge funders and uh, folks who wanted to outsource and uh, make it easier to, uh, to to make things overseas and, you know, bring them back for sale in the United States. Yeah, that was a real betrayal of the American working people. And it's, it's hard to blame the Democratic Party in its entirety for that, because when you look at it, you know, even NAFTA, even NAFTA in uh, 1992, when it passed, uh, no, 1993, excuse me, uh, you know, it, it, it had about one-third of the Democrats in Congress voting for it, two-thirds voted against it. But, you know, you had your President Clinton, and you had him allying with all the Republicans, and then a third of the Democrats to, to pass that. So I think that's just seen as a real as a real betrayal, um, you know, manufacturing being the, the bedrock of the union movement at one time. Um, and uh, I think there's a consequence to pay for that. Um, at the same time, I think, you know, we're seeing the party shift, and this is, I think we may have talked about this in a previous conversation, but, you know, this is a worldwide shift, uh, and it's interesting to see and hard to explain, maybe, but basically you have, like, the Democratic Party, the same with the Labour Party uh, in in in, um, in the United Kingdom and the Socialist Party in France. And around the world, what you're seeing is that the left-wing party in the spectrum uh, used to have just really solid, solid, solid support by, by working-class people, by union members, and so forth. And, and today, the base of support has shifted over to being the most educated. So, so today, uh, you know, on, on just sort of statistical level, you know, the higher education, the more likely you are to vote Democrat. It's the opposite of what it used to be. It used to be to lower the education, the more likely you are to vote Democrat. Um, so I, I think, you know, some of what we're looking at is, you know, the party has taken stances on, you know, sort of socially progressive issues, um, and you know, um, I, I'm not, uh, I'm, I'm, I'm fine with that. I'm, I'm on board with that. But I think that uh, at, at some level, that, that has the potential to alienate people. And if you don't, if you do that while not also delivering for working people, I think that's a recipe for disaster. And I think that's what we've seen now uh, in the last few decades uh, is that you know, Democrats have really lost the allegiance of the working class, and they're going to have to do something to, to get it back if they want to win. 
um, I, I think they're going to have to deliver. You know, they're going to have to change their reputation. Uh, they're going to have to be very, very clear of what they stand for. The, the biggest thing for me is just this is labor slogan. You know, which side are you on? Well, the thing is, you know, when when you're looking at um, you know a lot of issues. You know, the Republicans know which side they're on. And the, right. Democrats need to figure, the Democrats need to figure it out because, you know, if, if labor and management are in agreement on an issue, then that's great. Everybody's happy. But if they're on opposite sides, then I'll just say as a Democrat, if you want union support, if you want working people support, you need to know which side you're on. You need to be on the side of working people when they're in a battle with with people who are not. So <laughs> I'll, end, I'll end with that. No, I, I agree 100%. I think the Democrats have been struggling with that. Uh, uh, my take on Clinton is um, is that he bet that he run this socially liberal, uh, fiscally conservative. Uh, you know, he, he, he bet on winning the culture wars. And I say Donald Trump called his bet. You know, and uh, and again, that we even have to uh, I mean, Donald Trump handed this election to Joe Biden and, you know, we're four days out. And, of course, has a lot to do with the vote counting and all. But again, that the fact that the Democratic Party had to really fight and uh, lose Ohio, my goodness, my folks are out of Ohio, uh, you know, uh, and fight for Pennsylvania, fight for Michigan, uh, you know, the art, uh, you know, the industrial belt turned rust belt Don. Uh, I see that, you know, that, again, uh, they should have uh, won this, uh, uh, you know what, over tea kettle. And uh, we aren't going to get the Senate by the looks of things. We'll get uh, Harris in there if Biden becomes president as uh, the tiebreaker. But I don't even think we'll get to a tie. I don't think we'll even get to that point. Um, uh, It's so uh, right. I think also, Don, you know, just a few more minutes. I'll I'll throw this out because I really see this on discussions on – Facebook and also elsewhere, like in these times, that interesting article, the difference between uh, Big L labor, you know, the AFL-CIO and the labor movement. And I see this really with arguments about how Trump was horrible to workers with the appointments to National Labor Relations Board to his uh, head of Department of Labor. Uh, but to me, I, I actually see these as almost small beer compared to the macros of trade policy, of economic policy, of deregulation, privatization. Um, uh, does that make any sense to you? I think so. Can you, can you rephrase it, or what are you asking? Well, I've seen. I just seen it. Uh, no, what I see is that on one side, I see a focus on uh, on the labor, uh, big L labor, you know, from AFL CAO and the internationals, focusing and saying uh, Trump was disastrous when it came to such things as administrative appointments, uh, National Labor Relations Board appointments, and all. But what I don't see being taken into account is what I would consider the real macros, and that's how both the, the bipartisanship of the impact on uh, through our uh, trade policies, globalization, uh, you know, unfettered uh, capitalism under neoliberalism. Well, it's, a, it's it's an interesting set of issues. So I, I would say, you know, it's worth maybe take a minute to evaluate Trump's record. And um, because, you know, he, he, he did campaign so strongly four years ago um, on, on, on the trade issues. It's interesting. I didn't see him focusing as much on that now. And maybe it's because the record isn't that great. Now, with the, Na- the NAFTA renegotiation, the new one's called USMCA, US-Mexico-Canada uh, Agreement, um, you know, it was, a, it was 
But the first major trade agreement that the AFL-CIO actually supported, you know, that basically signed off on. Now, the first first go-around, the first version of it, uh, they said it wasn't good enough and they were going to oppose it. But he ended up adding a few things, making it stronger, uh, and, and it actually ended up being, as I mentioned earlier, you know, a, probably a positive from the standpoint of a trade agreement that will help working people a little bit. So that's good, right? But, you know, and, 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 and I'll, I'll be the first to say if somebody, I don't know, maybe like or didn't vote for it, did something good, you should, you should give them credit. But that when it comes to the rest of the trade policy, it really didn't go that well. And, you know, he really had a chaotic tra- a set of trade wars uh, with you know, with people that are considered allies as well as considered competitors in the global uh, community, um, and it was very chaotic, and you never knew what was going to happen with your, your with your steel tariffs or other tariffs. That you know, he 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 would raise tariffs, and then the other parties would raise tariffs, and you know, American manufacturing, uh, you know, could be hurt by that. Um, ultimately, I mean, I think the. Um, the, the proof of, of how poorly this went is in the actual deficit itself. So, uh, you know, his, his, his number one tar- target was what? China. Uh, the, the deficit, the annual trade deficit in goods with China actually rose during the first two years of the Trump administration from $346 billion to $418 billion. Um, and then it dropped uh, to back down to 345 uh, last year. Well, in July this year, uh, it surged to its highest the overall trade trade deficit. The, you know what we what we sell versus what we buy on the global market, highest level since 2008. So you know he can talk a good game, and you know he, he appears to care, or, or or you know people believe that he cares about this, but the actual record doesn't isn't that strong on trade. I'm sorry to say. Um, the the biggest thing really, if you wanted to look at the you know, there's really two accomplishments that Trump had in his first four years here, or his only four years, hopefully, um, and that that is uh, that is tax policy and it's the Supreme Court. And the tax bill that he passed, you know, it simplified your taxes. It's, it's not as long of a form, and that's nice. Uh, you know, it changed some things. You don't mostly don't need to itemize your deductions anymore. But the truth is, that your rates are probably about the same. Uh, the big the big cut is for for uh, basically the, the top a few percent. Um, you know, if you're working under, uh, if you make under $200,000 a year, your taxes went down about 2%. But for overall, uh, 83% of the savings from the tax cut went to the top 1% of income taxpayers. So those are the very rich people. Right. Um, these are folks earning over $500,000 a year. Uh, they saw their, their tax rate go down by a couple of percent. So that's, that's, that's the big thing. Um, and of course, the Supreme Court, which we'll see the you know, consequences of, uh, you know, for years to come. I, I think you know a lot of attention is on the uh, the social uh, questions of the court. But uh, the truth is, they make a lot of decisions that that uh, have to do with business law and workers' rights and so forth. So I'm, I'm a little worried about that coming forward. Um, we mentioned the infrastructure promise, the trillion dollars that never happened, but there were other things along the way as well. For example. Uh, in his uh, Department of Labor, they made an attack on the, the, the quality of apprenticeship the, right. uh, uh, programs. The, the, the building trades mobilized nationally in a way I haven't seen in a long time to oppose that. Uh, basically, they were going to let employers decide uh, all the terms of, of apprenticeship. Where, where going back 70, 80 years, uh, the federal policy had been to you know have you know, state-regulated apprenticeship programs that were regulated in the interest of the apprentices, and they had uh, you know sort of joint involvement by employers and unions. Well, they were you know they were very concerned about that. They ended up backing down. The, the Department of Labor backed down after all this pressure from from the billing trades. But they shouldn't have had to have that fight to begin with. Um, you know, uh, on basic
worker rights questions, he was on the wrong side. Uh, we had, you know, the, uh, the, the Janice versus Aspen case. Now, if you're a public sector worker, you don't have to pay for the uh, union dues if you don't want to. You know, they, they represent you. They, they negotiate your contract. But uh, now it's just if you want to, uh, <laughs> you can pay dues. You know, that is a right-to-work uh, situation. And it's designed to make unions uh, poor and weak. And uh, it passed in the Supreme Court, uh, you know, two years ago. Uh, the Trump administration lawyers, uh, you know, were arguing in favor of that ruling. So, you know, and, and that's a good example of that sort of which side are you on. Well, he was on the side of the anti-union folks. Um, and, yeah, so I just, I don't know where we got on this, but, you know, he, he has a, really a, a terrible record on, on actual policy issues that affect working people. Uh, but unfortunately, uh, from my perspective, you know, a lot of working people are still, um, you know, um, he appeals to them for, 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 for reasons, you know, that we should probably be thinking about. Absolutely. I agree with that last point. And as far as trade, I would always say it was ham handed at best. But uh, he changed. I believe we'll see he changed the narrative. That's why we're seeing. Uh, I, I will credit Trump for forcing Biden's hand on that. I guess maybe even before that uh, in 2016, when uh, uh, Clinton had to drop uh, what she considered the gold standard of trade agreements, TPP, Trans-Pacific uh, uh, Trade there. And had to drop it. So we are seeing uh, the conditions change. Don McIntosh with Northwest Labor Press, senior reporter, been in it a long time. Uh, NorthwestLaborPress.org. I urge anyone that's going to listen to this uh, talk here to find it on the Internet. And I urge them to consider getting the print edition. I, I love it. And uh, and delivered to you by our great uh, postal service. Uh, whole nother, a lot that we could be covering, but I'm going to let you go, Don. I appreciate your patience with both the technical and family issues here uh, from my grandkids uh, uh, partaking in it early on to uh, kind of the flubs on the uh, technology here, Don. And uh, just stay on the phone for one minute here after I stop recording again. This is John Andercheck, and you can get hold of me at laborlinejohn at yahoo.com. Thank you. Thank you, Don. Thanks for having me.